As we get together on this Easter Sunday, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to know this about the resurrection. The resurrection is the crowning proof of Christianity. Everything else that was said and done by Jesus is secondary in importance from him rising from the grave. His death on the cross the miracles, the walking on the Sea of Galilee, the casting of the demons into the 2,000 pigs, it all is secondary in importance to him rising from the grave. The resurrection is the issue. If you're a betting man, bet all your chips, take all your chips and put them there on the resurrection and you won't be bummed out. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is a false religion. And Paul knew that. In fact, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, where Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. <clears throat> if in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is worthless or futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. Man, what a, a dark thing to say. That if Jesus didn't rise from the dead... What we're doing today and what we do every Sunday and what we do every day, it's worthless faith. It's empty. It's futile. Those that we've buried in the ground with hope that one day we'll see them again, that's all a big lie. The worms are going to eat them and they're going to become dust again. And that's a bummer to think about. <laughs> Not only that, but I'm a false teacher. And if it was the Old Testament days, you guys should drag me out into the street and stone me with stones. And kill me for my heresy. Quite the dark thing that Paul would say. You know, if Christ didn't die from that, this is all worthless. He's absolutely right. I can think of a lot of other things to do on a Sunday than to come and hang out with you. No, I'm kidding. This kid's awesome. I love each and every one of you. But the game is on, you know, and the beer is cold, you know, and, and you know, the cigars need to be smoked, you know, and this and that, and the gals are everywhere. There's a lot of stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that's not the case. And I love verse 20 because Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. You know, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who's fallen asleep. Christ is risen from the dead. And he's just the first one of us to be risen. So if Christ is risen, then Christ is God and Christian faith is absolute truth. The world's greatest enemy has never been a person or an army. 
but it's always been death. Death has conquered all men but Christ. It's been said, no man is wise enough to outwit death. I faked him out. You know, I went left when he thought I was going to go right. You know, I totally faked out death. Or strong enough to crush death. Or wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death. The grave always wins the victory. And this doesn't just apply to humans, but all things that we possess and love. Our little pet schnookums, you know. Our little love fern that's sitting above the kitchen sink. You know, whole species become extinct. Cities and nations are born only to crumple to the ground again, just like people. Our homes and our cars and our clothes, they all rip and crumble and rust and eventually turn back into the powder from which they came. Romans chapter 8 verse 21 calls this the bondage of corruption. And science calls it the second law of thermodynamics that every system goes from order to disorder and eventually dies. All of the great men and all of the other men in history, even the holiest men have died. The Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, the Pope, John Paul II, Gandhi, you know, all of our military heroes, Alexander the Great and Caesar and George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan. They've all tasted death. And even the Hollywood stars that we can't just get enough of, the Batman, Heath Ledger, you know, Farrah Fawcett, the angel, Michael Jackson, the moonwalker, they're all dead. They've all tasted death. Even Mr. Rogers died. For some of us, that's the hardest one. No relation. But Jesus is alive. It's true that he died and that he was buried just like all other men, but unlike other men, he didn't stay in the grave. He returned from Hades, resurrected his own body, and emerged from the tomb to be alive forever. And that is something to rejoice in today. Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, you might want to write this down. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good man? Good man from back when? Is he a prophet, some good philosopher with some great ideas that, you know, his little coup of the Roman government went horribly wrong? Well, C.S. Lewis tells us, and most of you have heard this, he tells us that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's got to be Lord. And Dr. Henry Morris, the founder of the Creation Research Institute, says that if all of this is somehow a delusion, and if Jesus of Nazareth did not really rise from the dead, then he is no different from other great men who are also dead. He is worse than they, in fact, because he is thereby branded as either a charlatan or a madman, since he staked all of his claims to be absolute God and absolute deity on his promise I will return. He stole Arnold's slogan. I'll be back. I wasn't going to do it. I kind of was like, okay. So if the resurrection is really a fact in history, Jesus is more than a good man and he's more than a philosopher. He's God like he said he was. But if he's dead in the grave, then he's a filthy liar and we should never mention his name again. But he is risen from the grave. 
And not only are his claims true to be God, but also his promises of life for us and his promises of judgment for those that disobey the gospel. Because he's alive, death is no longer the victor, but is the defeated foe. And Peter knew that when he broke out in worship in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the only reason we have any hope is because Christ conquered death and Christ conquered death because he is God. And so I want to arm you guys with some awesome points about the resurrection. And I want you to think through them and reason. I want you to be a fair inquirer today. And I ask you, come and let us reason together. That though your sins were once scarlet, today they can be as white as snow because he's alive. Let me give you five main points of the resurrection. The first is that it's the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there would have been no Christian church. Do you remember what the disciples were like even before Jesus died, but when he was arrested in the garden? They were all clearly confused and afraid for their lives. There's no possibility that they could have continued on in Jesus's doctrines. And there's an even greater impossibility that others would have been persuaded to follow them in those circumstances. They were scaredy cats. They were crying like little schoolgirls. They were hiding under their bed and in their closets. And they didn't want what happened to Jesus to happen to them. How many of you would follow a guy that that's, that's that scared? You know, hey, 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 hey. Come here, come here. Hey, I gotta tell you something. You wanna come with me and let's tell the whole world that Jesus rose from the dead and, and, and we'll probably all get killed. But you know, it's like, dude, whoa, get away from me. I don't know what bit you, but it's not gonna get on me. You're foaming at the mouth a little bit. But with the assurance that Christ is alive, they went forth everywhere proclaiming the resurrections. And since then, billions have become believers in the resurrected Lord. It's the foundation of our faith. And if you look at the book of Acts, in the story of the early church, you can quickly scan the book and see that, uh, you know, probably over 15 times there's whole sections devoted to men preaching the resurrection. They would go to a town, they would preach the resurrection, they would get beat up, get thrown out of the town, go to another town, proclaim the resurrection, get beat up, get thrown out of the town, go to another town, proclaim the resurrection, get beat up, go to, you know, that's an endless cycle, really. But they did it because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they had seen, what they had heard, what their hands had handled was, was actually a real risen God. In the epistles, the resurrection is huge. Every book devoting part, uh, large quantities of the book to proclaiming the resurrection. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation, Jesus introduces himself and identifies himself as the first begotten of the dead and as the one that lives and died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Was that nice? <laughs> Lindsay hates it when I do that. So. So it's the foundation of our faith. 
Second main point of the resurrection, I want you to look at the predictions that the resurrection was going to happen before it ever happened. Now, the funny thing is the resurrection of Jesus caught the disciples completely by surprise. There's no indication that any one of them was sitting around hoping that Jesus would rise from the dead. You know, they, they had a big welcome home party and a big banner, you know, and a, and a marching band, you know, and they're like, woo, you know, he said he was going to rise from the dead, so let's get ready. No, every one of them, they'd fled, they'd gone back to their old professions, they became fishermen again within a couple of days. They ran away from Jesus, and Jesus had to go and search all of them out because they weren't all together waiting for him. So there's no indication that they were waiting around for this you know, welcome home party. In fact, when Jesus finally did appear to them, they weren't even ready for it. And they were frightened like they'd seen some ghost. You would have thought that they would have been completely prepared for this event. And all of this was in spite of what he had told him, that he would die. He would rise again on the third day. He would show it to them from the scriptures, from Psalm chapter 116, you know, and from his own words. He told them these things that would happen. In fact, after he did rise from the dead, He's trying to explain to them what had happened. Remember, I told you. And he says, these are the things which I told you when I spoke to you. What's the matter with you? You know, why aren't you listening? All throughout the scripture, the Old Testament prophesies of a man whose soul would not be allowed to see corruption. And that man is Jesus. And even if they missed it from the Old Testament, they should have heard it from Jesus's lips. But one thing is certain, the disciples could not have fabricated the story of the resurrection from their own imaginations. On the contrary, they somehow failed to even anticipate it. They just weren't ready. And it took the strongest evidences to convince them that I'm really alive. No, you're a ghost. Does a ghost have bones? Does a ghost have flesh? Can a ghost swallow a sardine whole? You know, he's like, look at me. But I can do this. And he did walk through a wall. You know, whoop, oh, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. You know? I'm in California, I'm in Oregon. I'm in California, I'm in Oregon. You know, uh, he, he did have this incredible new glorified body, but it was the same body that was in the tomb. Okay? And there were predictions about this all throughout the Old Testament and from the lips of Christ himself. So the resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. There were predictions about the resurrection. And, and thirdly, the empty tomb, the empty tomb. It's my favorite uh, main point of the resurrection. The empty tomb was the first evidence that the disciples had of the resurrection. You guys know the story. Peter and John are told by the gals that Jesus had risen. And so they started running. And it says that John was faster. And so he got to the tomb first and Peter was you know, trying to catch up. And then when John got to the tomb, he stopped and the other disciple came and looked in. And then when John looked in, it says, and immediately when he looked in, he saw and he believed. When people even today see the empty tomb, they believe. You know, their doubts and fears, just like John's, immediately give way to an amazed faith. Because those collapsed grave clothes that collapsed in on themselves were an evidence of a physical, resurrected, crucified Christ. And immediately when they saw it, they believed. I love going to the tomb in Israel, there in Jerusalem. I love, I've been there twice. We're going to go again someday. Uh, but to walk in there and go, 
He's not here, just like the angel said. He's not here. He is risen. The empty tomb is such a strong evidence and a testimony that the enemies and the critics and the skeptics of Jesus, they come up with all of these different little tricks to try to explain it away. But let me tell you this, the burden of proof is with the non-believer. We have all the evidence. They need to prove us otherwise. The alternate evidence for the other side is not that Jesus didn't rise, but that something happened to the body. Nobody denies that the tomb is empty. They just try to figure out what happened to that body aside from him being God. So the first little scheme that they have is by saying that the disciples had stolen the body. So that's why it's not there. The disciples stole it. Flip over to Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, and we'll read of uh, the account of this lie being fabricated. Matthew 28, 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. The idea that the disciples stole the body, it's out of the question. Because remember, the disciples were hiding in fear of their own lives. Nothing could have been further from their thoughts that, you know, as Peter, who just denied Christ three times to a junior high girl, all of a sudden, you know, his voice gets deeper and he's like, let's do this thing. Puts on his war paint, puts on his ninja outfit. Him and the other 11 come swinging into the tomb area, you know, karate punching and ninja stars, you know, knocking out the Roman guards, getting, you know, they were scaredy cats and they were completely afraid. They were hiding in fear of their lives. And not only that, but the tomb had been sealed. A great two ton stone had been rolled in front of it. And a watch of Roman soldiers had been set to guard it. In fact, just flip back a chapter to the Matthew 27, verse 62. It says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, hey guys, he's risen from the dead. So then the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. I mean, could you imagine this? You know, they're, they're there, the stones are rolled around and they're, they got their wax, you know, and they're filling in the cracks. They're really trying to seal this duct tape, you know. They got the Roman soldiers, about 15 of these Navy seals of their day, armed to the tooth, guarding the tomb, you know. Nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out, except someone did get out. <laughs> you know, uh, there's no way that these, these 11 chicken boys you know, in fact, next week we'll study that 
uh, they only had two swords. Because Jesus says, you guys, you're going to need to buy some, some swords. And he's like, we have two swords. <laughs> he's like, okay. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, so they took out these 15 guys with their two swords. Um, and so, you know, the disciples stole the body. That's out there. That's, that's pretty out there. Then the second attempt we have to explain the empty tomb is the swoon theory. Okay, the swoon theory is probably my favorite. <clears throat> it suggests that Jesus did not actually die on the cross at all, but that he fainted from weakness. Okay, you know, he was buried with the mistaken belief that he was dead. And when he came back to conscious in the tomb because the cool air revived him, he arose and he left. I watched an interview on the internet the other day with a man at a hemp fest in Seattle where this man declared the only way, oh, I can't even do it. Um, <laughs> the only way that Jesus could have resurrected was by smoking the hashish at the last supper, passing out on the cross and coming, um, coming to in the tomb. You know, so, so that's his only resurrection. He knows that the tomb is empty. And so there, there had to be some ganji involved, you know, or what is, you know, that's the only explanation. Okay, let's give this guy this for a second, you know, or let's, let's give the swoon theory this for a second. So here's Jesus. He never really died. Um, but actually, let, let's look at his, his trial and execution real quick. Remember that the, the Roman soldiers blindfolded Jesus and then beat him in the face with a baseball bat and saying, guess where I came, you know, which one of us hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? You know, then they whipped him with a cat of nine tails some 40 times, which these cat of nine tails would have uh, basically taken the skin completely off his back, made his back like hamburger, exposed his vital organs. I mean, when you look at the medical aspect of the, the trial and the crucifixion, the, the, the scourging should have killed him. In fact, 40 lashes was known to kill a man. 39 was mercy. Okay, uh, so he took the scourging. Then he packed this 100-pound tibulum, I think is what they called it. Uh, we'll get into that in a couple weeks packed this 90-pound crossbeam of the cross up to Golgotha where they crucified him with nails, okay? So let alone he barely survived the scourging, now he's crucified, the, the Roman form of the electric chair. Survived six hours on the cross, he's buried in the tomb, and okay, let's just say that he swooned, okay? So how, in this guy's weakened condition, did he manage to disengage himself from 100 pounds of wrapping and spices, you know, gets out of that, okay? Then he finds his way in the dark tomb over to where the rock is, two tons of stone, and he <laughs> throws it away because one of the gospels says that an angel was sitting on the rock at a great distance. So somehow he <laughs> throws that away, okay? <clears throat> he wakes up the Roman guards, does a little karate ninja stuff, beats them all up after his crucifixion and scourging, <laughs> you know? And then runs off and finds all of the disciples in their different locations. I would not want to be one of those disciples seeing this guy coming at me, you know? The night of the living dead, seriously. Yeah, it's me, guys, it's me, you know? I'm not making fun of Jesus, I'm making fun of this idea. It's ridiculous. Hey, guys, let's go follow. Want to walk on the water? You know? Um, nobody would be going with him, that's for sure. So, how did the sight of such a pitiful Jesus, beaten almost beyond recognition and weak past endurance from loss of blood on the cross, 
How could these 11 guys have gotten so excited and completely transformed from cowering disciples uh, to, to just incredible witnesses for the gospel when they knew that he's going to die soon anyways from his wounds? The reason that they went from cowering disciples to bold proclaimers of a resurrected Savior is because he's alive and they saw him in his glorified body. Besides, there's no doubt that really Jesus really did die on the cross anyways. You know, look at Mark chapter 15, verse 43. We read of Joseph of Arimathea. Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent council member who was himself waiting the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he'd been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. John's gospel tells us that when, the, when the, um, the Romans went up to the cross, that they started breaking the legs of the other men on the cross. You know, crucifixion, actually you die from suffocation because you can't pull yourself up to get a breath and you get sucked down, you can't breathe. So they would finally, after about six hours, they would break these men's legs so they couldn't lift themselves up and they would die from suffocation. But when they got to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so one of the soldiers just took a spear and threw it into Jesus' side. And it says immediately, John's gospel says, blood and water came out. Now, the interesting thing is, is um, doctors of this day look at that and realize that this is, 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 is a form of the collapse of the chest cavity where the heart would explode. And that these liquids coming out in such a quantity show that his heart literally exploded. Now, I was listening to Mark Driscoll yesterday, and he was kind of funny because he says, I don't know if you know this, but when your heart explodes, it's all over. You know, our bodies aren't like a pickup truck with a spare tank. You know, uh, <laughs> you got one heart. Once it explodes, it's done. And that was the case for Jesus. His heart had exploded. The other beautiful thing about it was it was prophesied from old that not a bone of Jesus's body was going to be broken. And so he had already died. He died of a broken heart, you know, as he hung there on the cross. And so this complete collapse of the heart cavity shows that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't just swooning and passing out. You know, he died on the cross in your place for you, for the guy at Hempfest. You know, for the man in the bar, for you sitting in the pew, for me, he died on the cross there. The third attempt to explain away the marvelous empty tomb was that Mary and the other women went to the wrong tomb. And I can kind of believe that one. <laughs> the, no, just kidding. Um, you know, there was no other tomb there. The Bible says that this garden that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, you know, it says that no one else had been buried there. If the body was buried in another tomb, it could have easily been found, especially since they knew Joseph of Arimathea took him, you know. Oh, I think we, went, we took a left and we should have gone right, you know. Where is it? Oh, it's over here, guys. Oh, hey, idiots, dead body, Jesus right here. You know, quit gloating, <laughs> you know. It's over. Christianity is over. You know, when everyone was rejoicing of the resurrected Jesus, they could have immediately quenched the fire of the faith 
by pro producing the body of Jesus. But of course they couldn't because Jesus was actually walking among them. <laughs> you know, I produced it. Say hi, Jesus. Hi, Jesus. Okay, he's right here. He's walking around. He's living. So the empty tomb is so powerful. Uh, the fourth main point of the resurrection are the eyewitness accounts and the appearances of Christ. So not only was the tomb empty, but the disciples actually saw Jesus risen. And on 13 separate occasions, the disciples saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Let me just read them to you. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to the two on the road to Emmaus, to 10 of the disciples, to all 11 of the disciples, uh, eight days later, uh, to seven disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, to 500 followers at one time, to James, to the 11 at the Ascension. And Acts chapter 1 tells us that he showed himself alive for 40 days with many infallible proofs. Imagine if this was Prineville. You know, imagine if, if you know, Jesus died in Prineville uh, and was buried up by the lookout, you know, up on that steep trail, you know, and one day we went to find him, where's Jesus, where's Jesus? And he's going around with a megaphone in an ice cream truck announcing that he's here, he's here. And for 40 days, you know, he's, hey, look at me, hey, touch my hands, hey, poke at me, hey, talk to me, ask me any question, I'll tell you the answer, you know. Uh, imagine that for 40 days, you know, you know a, a jury would obviously declare the man is alive. And even after his ascension, he was seen by Stephen. He was seen by Paul. And he was seen by John in Revelation. So this is all historical info, eyewitness accounts. If it were a lie, the Bible would probably say, and only one man saw him, and he holds the secret to this day. But no, the Bible says, go ask anybody that you want. There's 500 people right around this area that all saw him at one time. They'll all tell you what they saw. The Bible had nothing to hide. Another way that people try to explain away the, the empty tomb is by saying that all of these appearances of Jesus were merely all hallucinations or visions or some drug-induced you know, hypnosis or hysteria. And I love what that Dr. Henry Morris said. He said, such hallucinations, if this is what they really were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychologic scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals, all seeing the same vision, but in different uh, groups at different times, both indoors and outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lakeshore, and other places. Furthermore, they weren't even looking for Jesus at all. Seven times they didn't even recognize him at first, and at least once they believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him, and they recognized his wounds in his hands. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time that this evidence was being used. And he closes by saying, the vision theory is thus quite impossible, and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidence of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact in history. Is that not awesome or what? We know George Washington crossed the Potomac. But we know Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared 
to over 500 people. That's incredible. Fourth main point, fifth main point of the resurrection, the witness of the apostles. You know, it's completely impossible that the, that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely sure and under deep conviction of the truth, what they had seen. They had instantaneously changed, instantaneously changed from craven runaways to these bold apostles and proclaimers of Jesus. This preaching of Jesus being alive cost them the loss of all their possessions intense persecution, finally the torture of, and the loss of not only their lives, but their children and their family members. Yet they kept preaching as long as strength permitted. And multitudes believed uh, what they were preaching and then went through the same suffering. But if they were faking this, if it was all some little plot, you know, if somewhere in a closet down in Peter's basement, they had this swooned Jesus, you know, kind of on a IV drip system, you know, um, it would have been so difficult to keep the lie going. You know, lies always help us out in some way or another. You know, they never, uh, we don't keep doing our lives so that we can keep being tortured. You know, these guys would have gotten the letter that, you know, Matthew was just thrust through with the spear yesterday. Oh my gosh, this is going too far. You know, John was just boiled alive in a vat of hot oil. Oh, is anyone going to say anything? <laughs> Shouldn't we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to sound the horn. Toot! It was all a lie. Just quit hurting us. We're sorry. It was a big joke. It was April 1st, Passover week, April Fools. I thought you guys would laugh. No, no one was laughing. They were killing people. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a plot. They were sure that they had seen him. And so we look at the lives of the apostles and it's awesome evidence that Jesus really did rise from the grave. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, where we started in verse 30, Paul says, if Jesus isn't risen, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I can't sleep at night because I'm afraid the, the Roman Gestapo is going to come in and take my wife and my kids away. If this is all a big joke, I'm done. Joke's over. You know, it's evidenced in their death. When Simon Peter was crucified by uh, Caesar Nero upside down on an X-shaped cross. Studies show that his entrails, the pressure would have caused the entrails to come out of his mouth. But before that even happened, church history tells us that Peter was in prison in Rome and some of his disciples freed him and, and they escaped. And he's running away from the prison and the Lord appears to him and says, Peter, go back to prison. This is how I want you to die and glorify me. So he turned around and went back into the prison. And history says that before they crucified Peter, they crucified his wife in front of him. And as she was being killed, he kept shouting, remember Christ, remember Christ. It wasn't a lie. They both had seen him. Simon or Peter's brother Andrew was also crucified on an X-shaped cross outside of Odessa. And history says that uh, he witnessed to people as they walked by on the road. And he would say, I saw Jesus alive. I saw Jesus alive. They're killing me because I saw Jesus alive. Believe, believe. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod Agrippa I by a sword because he wouldn't deny Jesus. Philip was put in prison and scourged and eventually crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified. Thomas and Matthew were thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned, refusing to deny that Jesus was alive. 
Jude was crucified outside Odessa. Simon was crucified. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded. But let's go back to Paul. The converted life of Saul of Tarsus is an evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Saul of Tarsus hated Christians and was doing everything in his power to kill them. He was delivering women and children over in chains. He hated Christians until he was on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul got saved that day and became Paul, one of the most incredible evangelists the world has ever seen. The day that the church meets is evidence of the resurrection. How do you explain a mass number of Orthodox Jews who had worshipped on the Sabbath Saturday for the whole of creation because the law said so, all of a sudden they're meeting on Sunday? That's like saying, guys, here at Calvary Kirk County, we're not going to meet at 9 and 11 on Sunday anymore. We're going to meet at 5 o'clock on Monday morning. No, thanks. <laughs> the only reason we would do that is if Jesus had rose from the dead on Monday. And so that's, you know, this, this whole change happened within these Orthodox Jews. Now they were Messianic Jews. You know, we meet on Sunday because we're celebrating the resurrection. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. Easter just happens to be on a Sunday, you know. We celebrate the resurrection every day. And how do you explain that the church has changed lives for over 2,000 years? And so there's biblical evidence, which I believe is, is the ultimate authority. But there's also some incredible testimonies of some additional authorities and scholars. You look at Josephus, who was a Jewish historian captured by the Romans, and he writes some incredible things in his Testimonium Flavium, where he writes of these Christians, and I think he himself became a Christian. You might check that, but I'm pretty sure he did. The cool thing about Josephus, he was a historian captured by the Romans to document the capture of Jerusalem. And as he's writing that down, he's seeing these Christians, he calls them the tribe of Christians, who are proclaiming that they saw the resurrected Jesus. This historian was there when the eyewitnesses was still alive, and he wrote about it. That's an incredible account that's still with us to this day. We've got a man named Thomas Arnold, and I'm not talking Roseanne's ex-husband, you know, Tom, Tom Arnold. Thomas Arnold was the professor of history at Rugby in Oxford. And uh, when he looked at the combined evidences of the empty tomb, the numerous appearances, the changed lives of the disciples, the authenticity of the records, he ended up writing this, professor of history at Rugby. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind, which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. That is awesome. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a logical faith. It's not a bunch of crazies on these weird drugs that are like, whatever you believe, whatever you believe. No, you can use your brains in this faith and you'll find it to be true. You'll get Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard and has been known as the greatest legal mind that ever lived. He wrote this legal volume uh, called The Treatise of Law, uh, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence which has been considered to be the greatest legal book ever written, okay? 
He believed, Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection was a hoax. Christians were crazy and he sought out to prove Christianity wrong. It was, the resurrection was a myth. And as he set out to, to prove this, he came to the exact opposite conclusion and became a Christian, this professor of law at Harvard. And he wrote this, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. And Greenleaf concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported evidence in all of history. And he became a Christian. What an awesome thing. John Singleton Copley, He's the, been known as the greatest legal mind in British history. He was the solicitor general of uh, the British government, attorney general of Great Britain, Britain, three times high chancellor of England. This guy has some status, okay? He's an authority on, on legal matters. Uh, he's elected as the high steward in the University of Cambridge, okay? And he held in one lifetime all of the highest offices ever appointed a judge in England. And here's what he said. John Singleton Copley. I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has never broken down yet. The evidence of the resurrection is incredible. Lord Darling, the Chief Justice of England, wrote, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Dr. Frank Morrison was a lawyer who was brought up at the feet of uh, the atheist and skeptic Matthew Arnold, he was an Oxford professor, and then Thomas Huxley, who was um, Darwin's bulldog for evolution. Here, Frank Morrison grew up under these guys, went out to completely dispel the myth of the resurrection, and after all of his research, came back with a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he ended up becoming a Christian as well defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I want to close with one of our favorite writers, C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, awesome author. Um, but C.S. Lewis was the former professor of medieval and Renaissance history at Cambridge. And he believed, and I quote, Christians were dead wrong. He couldn't have been further opposed to Christianity and this gospel they preached about this God who died and rose again. The last thing C.S. Lewis ever wanted to do was become a Christian. And in 1926, he writes this in his journal. The hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room at the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the gospels was really surprisingly good. All this stuff about the dying God. It almost looked as if it really happened once. To understand the shattering impact, you would need to know the man who's never since or ever did show any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of the cynics, the toughest of the tough, were not, as I would call, still safe, where could I have turned? Was there no escape? <laughs> he can almost see himself starting to become a Christian. He's like, no, no, I really don't want to become a Christian. I really don't want to have anything to do with this Jesus guy. Uh, he then wrote, uh, after he evaluated the evidence of Christianity, he wrote that uh, all the other religions had no such historical claim as Christianity. And he began to write, 
I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as a myth. And he got saved. And, and he writes about the day he got saved. He said, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted from my work for even a second, uh, there was this steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, wrestling with the overwhelming amount of evidence. And maybe that's you today. You came in that door, maybe just doing the religious looking thing, coming to Easter. And really, you're really hoping to get through this service without bowing the knee to Jesus. I mean, you are like, I love my life too much. I love my pleasures too much. Please, no, I don't. Guys, Jesus asked the disciples, do you want to leave me? And Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Guys, who else are you going to turn to? What else are you going to turn to? There's only one who's risen from the dead. There's only one who has promises that we can count on. Promises both for heaven to those who believe on him and promises also of judgment and eternity in hell for those that disobey the gospel. And I plead with you tonight, come with a joyful heart, not like C.S. Lewis, come with a joyful heart and let Jesus take away the chains that are holding you to sin and death. It's ruining your life. It's ruining your marriage. You're destroying yourself. Let Jesus take his key and take that bond off your leg. Let him free you from the sin that's going to take you down to death and destroy you. He wants to bring life to you today. And he showed it by rising from the dead and being life. John chapter 14, verse 19, and we can have the worship team come back up. Jesus says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live you will live also. Jesus also said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says this, do you believe this? That's the question today to you. Do you believe this or is Jesus dead to you? Because if Jesus is dead to you, you can take your chances. And maybe there's nothing after death. Maybe you'll die and rot in the ground. That's not going to happen. <laughs> or maybe there is a God. And you need to surrender your life to him. And you need to realize that your sins separate you from him. But he came and paid for those sins. He took them away on the cross. He shed his blood when it should have been your blood. And he paid the ransom price so that your sins could be taken away and you could be freed. And all you need to do today is give him all that you are. <laughs> give him all that you are. And I, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying, show faith in your heart and say, Lord, right now, I'm like C.S. Lewis right now, Lord. I, I want to hold on to this stuff. I want to keep it. I don't want to be some weird religious guy, Lord. But okay, okay, Lord, I'm letting go. I'm letting go. I'm letting go. Just let go. Let yourself let go and let God take it all. Let Jesus take all your sins. He says, come and let us reason together. 
He's been trying to reason with you this morning. Please look at the evidence. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow and I'll remember them no more. But you've got to humble yourself and you've got to surrender. There's no place for the proud in heaven. Just humble yourself today. Just surrender. And you'll find such freedom and such victory. Romans tells us if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Today, I want to ask you to confess that Jesus is risen. Confess him as Lord and surrender your life over to him and watch what he'll do. Watch how he'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Your life is down to a little nub sticking out of the ground. And God wants to bring just a huge tree bearing much fruit out of your life. You've got to humble yourself. And you have to come to Jesus like a little child. Like a little child. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. And he'll come into your heart. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and comes and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And today the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart saying, I'm alive. I want to be with you forever. I want to give you eternal life. I want to take away your sins. But you've got to open the door. I'm not going to bust it down. And I want to give you an opportunity right now where you're at to just be like a little child in school and open the door and let Jesus in. I ask you right now to just, if you came in those doors today and Jesus was dead to you, but today he's alive and he's speaking to your heart, he's knocking on the door of your heart, and you want to open it right now, I want to ask you just to lift up your hand right now and respond. Lord sees you. Just lift up your hand and respond like a little child. You've got to humble yourself. Jesus was bold and brave and hung on the cross for six hours after taking a whipping with you in mind that you would come to church on Easter Sunday 2010 and hear about him and receive him. But he was bold and brave on that cross. I want to ask you, will you be bold and brave and respond to God and say, Lord, that's me. Today I was unregenerate and dead in my sins, but I know you want to make me alive and you want to forgive me. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. 
Thank you for listening, and God bless.